Good morning and happy new year. Happy Reyes. I think today it was hard for a lot of people to get up and get moving. <laughs> Especially you 10 o'clock people who we'd gotten used to 11 o'clock for a couple of Sundays. Gets us out of shape, doesn't it? I hope you have had a good Reyes weekend, Three Kings weekend. We never celebrated Epiphany when I was a kid growing up. It just wasn't a part of our religious tradition. But our sons never missed an opportunity since they were growing up here in Spain. They recognized the Spanish celebration as a great opportunity, whichever version of the Reyes Magos you adhered to. <laughs> and the Spanish have an interesting saying, they have a lot of interesting sayings, but one in particular that's appropriate for today says, Cada uno en su casa es rey. I think they would have to update that saying nowadays. Something like, Cada uno en su casa es rey o reina. <laughs> mm. Each one in his own home, in her own home, is the king or the queen. Yeah. So who's reigning in your household? In this new year, who is reigning in your life? I hope that's the case. Who's on the throne of your life? That's basically the question we're dealing with, isn't it? Um, we want to talk about kings this morning, even though the title of the message says, mm, Singing the Lord's Song in a Foreign Land. Some of you may say, well, I'm not in a foreign land. I was born here. <laughs> this is my home. We'll talk about that, okay? We'll get to that. Um, but the underlying question, even here, is actually, who is your king? Because if you're going to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, it depends totally on who is really your king. And this question... Mm, came up as far back as the early days of Israel. When the people looked around at other nations and decided they wanted to be more like them. Oof, that's dangerous. Do you follow me? It's very dangerous when we look around and the world becomes our reference point, our standard. Going down the tubes fast. Not a good situation for Israel either. In fact, they thought that to have a king like other nations was the solution to all their problems. And of course, it wasn't the beginning of their problems, but it was going to increase them many times over. In effect, they were telling God they didn't want him to be their king. They wanted a, a human, visible king so they could be like the other nations and it was indeed the beginning of so many problems you remember that first king Saul turned out not to have the spiritual maturity needed for the job in fact I think it's important for all of us to recognize that we don't have the spiritual maturity to be king of our own lives either 
but often that's what we try to do. Are you with me? Okay. Some are. About two-thirds are not yet. <laughs> so get with it. Got to think about this. You got to do your part. I'm going to do mine, okay? And the Lord's going to do his. You remember, though, the second king of Israel set a higher standard. He was called a man after God's own heart. And he really did so much to help Israel get going in the right direction. Even though later, you'll remember, some serious flaws and failures showed up in King David as well. And revealed that actually he didn't have the maturity either to rule God's people adequately. But God gave him a promise a really important promise, didn't he? That one of his descendants would ultimately come to reign on his throne forever. It would be the forever kingdom. And he would be the perfect king. He would be the desired of all nations, as one prophet would call him. He would be the, the one who was truly fit for the job, who truly knew how to reign with justice, with integrity, and peace. But it's 10 centuries later before that king actually shows up, isn't it? Finally, when all the conditions were right in the fulfillment of God's timing, he sent this, his descend, this descendant from the line of David to be born of the Virgin Mary in the city of David. And interestingly enough, his life was immediately in danger from the local king by the name of Herod, known as Herod the Great. Hmm. Herod the Great. He did do a lot of building all over Palestine. He was great in architecture, but he was also great in jealousy paranoia, ego. He was a real megalomaniac. And his reputation for killing those who seemed a threat to him was well-deserved. Maybe you remember that his victims included one of his ten wives, his favorite wife, by the way. She's the one he killed. And his two sons by her and too many others to count. That was his reputation. He had to live up to it, huh? But, of course, the most heinous deed that he's remembered for was condemning all those little boys around Bethlehem, two years old and under, condemning them to death when he discovered that those wise men, those tricky wise men, had not returned to inform him about the new king whose star they had seen in the east as they had agreed the slaughter of the innocents, sometimes also known as the massacre of the innocents, it's called. Motive for Matthew's prophetically recalling Rachel's uncontrollable weeping over her sons. Remember that one too. Jeremiah's prophecy. The Greek liturgy claims Herod killed 14,000 boys. The Syrian Christian tradition puts it at 64,000. Medieval authors 
often put the number up to 144,000. Now, that number should sound familiar if you've read the book of Revelation. And of course, those numbers far exceed the population of a small town like Bethlehem and it's the region around it. So the whole incident is called into question by liberal scholarship. The well-known Jewish historian Josephus makes no mention of any such massacre. Whereas those who take the biblical testimony seriously recognize this act that Matthew records as totally in keeping with the character of Herod. And also, they find no serious evidence for doubting Matthew's testimony. Except the fact that Josephus doesn't mention it. Well, why would Josephus not mention it? Conservative scholarship suggests that given the population of Bethlehem at the time, which probably wasn't over 1,500, then the number of children under two years old, two years old and under, would probably not have been over a couple of dozen. Half of those surely were female. So we're talking about a number somewhere between 10 and 15 male children who were actually executed. Well, I think that could explain why Josephus wouldn't have taken note of it or given it importance when Herod had so many other murders to his credit that Josephus was tracing out, such as the stadium full of Jewish leaders that he had put to death when he died so that the Jewish people would not be rejoicing over his death. They would have something to weep about. That's how evil he was. So putting to death 10 or 15 little boys under two, no, that's perfectly in line with the kind of thing he would have done. Even so, even if it's just 10 or 15. It was a very heinous crime that King Herod committed. Cause for copious lamenting. Yet for some reason, some strange reason, it's called blessed when the psalmist imagined a similar treatment for the innocence of Babylon. That's from the psalm that we read this morning. Though, of course, we omitted reading those final terrible verses because of the overt violence they describe. Have you ever heard a psalm preached on Psalm, a, a sermon preached on Psalm 137? I admit I've never preached a sermon on Psalm 137. I've used bits and pieces of it. But you do remember how it ends apparently glorifying vengeance and even infanticide. And in the most gruesome form, dashing babies against the rocks. Wow. That's fierce, isn't it? And calling the perpetrator of such evil, blessed. The Hebrew word is asher, or as we say in English, asher. It's the name Asher. It means happy, blessed. Blessed is that one who does this to the innocent ones of Babylon because that was Israel's arch enemy. Okay, so 
theological question here, hermeneutical question. What do you do with Psalm 137? How do you deal with it as the Word of God? Because usually we think of God's Word in terms of His commandments for our lives, His teaching and doctrine or examples that we are to follow. Is that an example we're supposed to follow? Hmm, heaven forbid. So how do you answer this? Haven't you dealt with this before in your life? All right, nobody wants to speak up. <laughs> you know the first thing you have to do is start with the context, right? We have to take a psalm in every passage of Scripture in context, first of all. So, going to the context, this psalm is a reflection of the broken hearts and dreams of the Jewish people exiled in Babylon after the destruction of their beloved Jerusalem. And you remember how the destruction of Jerusalem, their temple, was the most devastating thing that had ever happened to them. But it's also the time when all of Israel's sinful idolatry finally caught up with her. Because, you know, what we sow is what we reap. That's God's law. Numbers 20, 32 says, be sure your sin will find you out. Because the law of sowing and reaping is always functioning, isn't it? So it was the most tragic day in Israel's history. But her prophets had been foretelling it for generations. Her kings had, for the most part, been pretty corrupt. Yeah, we can blame some of it on them. Mm. There were some notable exceptions. Jehoshaphat, Jotham, Hezekiah, Josiah. But out of a list of 21, that's a very small number, isn't it? And now, the Jewish people found themselves under a fully pagan king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar living in a foreign land. And it seemed to them that the songs of Zion had been forfeited because of their disgraceful status as slaves and exiles. And the request of their captors for them to sing songs of Zion, make merry, it really felt like mockery and humiliation. Just rubbing it in. So their best response seemed to them to be just to hang up their harps and dig their heels deeper into devotion. Devotion to Jerusalem. Curse their enemies, especially those Edomites who had been so happy the day of Jerusalem's downfall, and then to delight in vengeance against Babylon. Now, you have to understand here the background of the Old Testament. You remember the Lex Talionis, the law of the Talon. What did the law of the Talon say? Eye for an eye, 
tooth for a tooth. Not that this was the highest level of God's law. This was the limit on vengeance. You cannot take it any farther than this. You lose an eye, the other guy's eye is all you can take out. A tooth, but later it was also a life for a life, wasn't it? So the Jews, thinking in terms of how they treated our babies, we have a right for their babies to receive the same treatment. And to them, that was the most vivid expression of their spiritual zeal. Do we see it? To treasure Jerusalem that had been destroyed, God's dwelling place, meant dashing Babylonian babies against the rocks. Oof. We feel it as a very twisted frame of mind or system of values, but somehow it fit in that nook, that niche of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So the question that comes up is, was this God's attitude they were expressing? We have to examine this at several levels. At one level, their prediction of disaster on the enemies of God is irrefutable. Are you with me on that? It would indeed come to pass in God's timing because the enemies would also reap what they had sown. Same law applied to them, didn't it? So those who oppose God and His ways are actually opposing goodness, justice, truth, mercy. They're opposing everything good in God. And you don't think they're going to reap what they have sown? You bet they are. So the only possible outcome for those Babylonians was for them to reap the consequences of their foolishness. Jeremiah 6.19 says, When God judges people, He simply lets them experience the fruit of their own evil schemes. The Old Testament is full of this. The Psalms, the Proverbs, the, the evil you commit is going to come back on your own head. You dig a pit, you're going to fall in it. That's just the way life works. In fact, what we find in this psalm is true in many places in the prophets as well where the writer in dialogue with God actually just lays bare his soul. Deepest angers, deepest resentments, and God can handle it. Even when it doesn't represent God's highest standard, God allowed his servants to vent with him, to pour out their souls to him, to give voice to their angers and fears, even the worst and the ugliest that they had inside. Does God allow you and me to do that? Can we do that? Somebody said yes, but I don't know if the rest of you are that brave. <laughs> do you ever do that? Just pour out all the junk in your heart to God? It's uh, actually very good advice because if you don't pour it out to God, you're liable to pour it out on your family, on your workmates, your schoolmates, etc. Somebody's going to get it. Yeah, God can handle it. God can take it. And in effect, 
this psalm is giving us permission to pour out the junk to him and he'll teach us how to lament over it, how to repent over it and entrust it to him instead of us trying to take vengeance in our own hands or take justice into our own hands. You follow? Okay, so there's an important spiritual principle there. But then, of course, we do have to take this one more level, don't we? Because we realize that God's own attitude toward enemies is quite a different story from what this psalm depicts because we see how it plays out in the example of Jesus, the king who conquered by laying down his life, giving up his life instead of destroying his enemies on the spot according to their just deserts. But you know, we can't expect Old Testament writers to manifest this same level of understanding and magnanimity toward fellow humans as we see in the New Testament standard. That would be an anachronism for them to already understand what God was going to do in Jesus. They had some inkling of it, but they could not imagine to what lengths God would actually go to redeem us. So, since that time, many kings have come and gone. Since Nebuchadnezzar's day, since Herod's day, and on down through history as humanity has awaited the return or the arrival of that promised king, the one who would rule with justice and faithfulness Since that time, undoubtedly, the majority of the kings and rulers of the earth have been mostly unworthy. Would you agree with that? Mostly, for the most part, unworthy. But many a legend of worthier warrior kings has sparked the human imagination time and time again from every continent and nation around the world. One of the strongest promoters of such ideal kings and kingdoms, you know their name, been around for decades, in fact, since 1955. Progressively, more glamorous kingdoms, progressively, more fantastic kingdoms, and nowadays, less and less trustworthy in their content. Not only Disney, but my kids... We're playing Age of Empires since computer war games first started to be promoted with the kingdoms and lords, armies, earth wars, empire warriors, transformers, gang nations, etc., etc. Everybody actually looking for that special formula, looking for the true winner. Who's going to get us there? In the West, specifically in British tradition, that ideal was especially represented in the story of King Arthur. Supposedly a 5th or 6th century Romanized Celtic who fought against the invading Anglo-Saxons. And the legend that grew up around him 
received its most complete form in Le Mort de D'Artur. 1485, if you can believe. That was a long time ago, wasn't it? But it was the classic English language chronicle by Sir Thomas Mallory. Centuries later, it would be elaborated on in T.H. White's series of novels, novels under the title The Once and Future King. And of course, later it would be immortalized in the stage and movie versions of Camelot. Multiple. And ever since Mallory's version, the story has included this tomb inscription for him. It says in Latin, Hic jacet Arturus, rex quondam rex futurus. You notice it rhymes in Latin. It doesn't in English. <laughs> in English, it's just prose. Here lies Arthur, once and future king. Really enduring legend constructed around the memory or the imagination of this warrior king. Must have been an amazing leader if he ever even existed because in spite of the many claims that King Arthur was a real historical person, the current consensus among specialists on the period holds him to be more a mythological or folkloric figure and at best he was just a dream king. Just a dream king. Humanity could spend our whole lives dreaming, couldn't we? And totally waste our lives dreaming, focused on fantasy. Well, there's an, another British guy, philosopher, atheist, named John Gray, who very adamantly does not believe in fairy tale kings. But he wrote a book last year entitled The New Leviathans. You'll have to just imagine what that title is about. But he declares unabashedly that Christianity has historically been the anchor for free societies in the West. He's an atheist, but he recognizes the role that Christianity has played in Western societies. An anchor. But in pursuit of worldly kings and worldly patterns, Western nations have just been moving farther and farther away from their traditional Christian roots and now pursuing individual freedom to such an extreme that they're denying humanity's identity as made in the image of God. Oh, image of God, that's just a, fig a figment of somebody's imagination. Just a religious invention, they say. So, these nations, our nations, Western Europe, he says are systematically deconverting. Deconverting. <laughs> Unconverting. Mm, abandoning Christian faith. Or we could say reverting to paganism. That's what it is. Neo-paganism. And superstition, that's what's filling the gap as true religion is weeded out. Well, this atheist, John Gray, 
asks with genuine concern, what on earth is going to happen to these nations? How will they avoid becoming destabilized? These nations that are deconverting, that are abandoning their Christian roots, their anchor, it just looks like they're headed straight toward the cliff. And in fact, his prediction for the West is that we are headed into a time of serious social decomposition and moral chaos, racing toward a very dark precipice. Are we ready for that? Can we believe this guy? He's an atheist, you know. <laughs> Do atheists have anything to tell us? I think we better listen. I think it could be a prophetic voice in spite of himself. But there's something missing in his message of despair and doom. Do you notice? <clears throat> What's the missing piece in his vision of the future? In his atheist philosophy, there is no concept of redemption. Doesn't exist. In his agnostic DNA, there is no gene that carries the spark of hope. In his unbelief, there is simply no true king of the universe, which means we are basically a headless monster hurtling through space at breakneck speed with no destination. Wow. Future looks pretty grim, doesn't it? So are you ready to despair? Do we throw up our hands in despair? You're very quiet. No, we don't. I hope in your hearts you're already answering. No, because we know the once and future king for real. We know who he is. The once and coming king. The real king of creation. Always reigning on high. Never lacking. Already reigning in hearts that confess his name. Because the king we worship and follow is neither a legend nor a fairy tale, but in fact the true Lord of history. He authenticated his worth and his reality with a personal appearance on our planet. And he left mountains of evidence regarding his true existence and his true legacy. Did you know there are more manuscripts, ancient manuscripts in Greek of the New Testament than for any other historical figure of the ancient world. More, thousands more regarding the life and history of Jesus Christ. And did you know that Jesus actually left marks on our history, indelible marks? One of them is Scripture itself. This book is nothing less than a miracle. When you examine it carefully, you realize that its theme from beginning to end is the same. It all comes together. All of those threads weave an amazing tapestry 
that's nothing less than miraculous. Not only that, the church, in spite of all its failures, in spite of all its shortcomings, and sinful people like you and me, the church is another evidence of the life and work of Jesus Christ. It says, He was here and He left us this legacy. And in spite of our shortcomings, we're still being led according to His way, His truth. The value of human life is right here, folks. That is a legacy from this scripture, this spirit who made Himself known. And there's one more interesting mark that he left on humanity and on our history that a lot of times is neglected, but the fact of Sunday worship, oh, hadn't thought about that one, the day of his resurrection, that is what provoked that amazing social upheaval in the first century, changing the day of worship from Saturday, the Sabbath, to the first day of the week. That was a sociological upheaval. It was brought about by simple Christian people following their Lord, worshiping Him on the day when He was raised from the dead. Don't miss it. The evidence is there for anyone who wishes to take note of it. The very value of human life derives from there. So the only hope for meaning and for redemption in this world comes from that one scripture calls King of Kings and Lord of Lords and then continues describing him with so many other titles that exalt him and lift him up from beginning to end. Not just in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. It's already pointing to him as that wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know, that kind of evidence in the Old Testament would be idolatrous. It was almost idolatrous for the disciples to think of Jesus as God until they saw him as resurrected. And then they simply could not deny it. This is God in the flesh. Now, according to Psalm 2, this is the king whom God himself installed on the throne of Zion. And in that psalm, kings of the earth are warned to serve him. They are admonished to submit to him. Kiss the son, says that psalm. And then it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Are you taking refuge in Jesus as your king in 2024? You are invited to do so just in case there might be someone among us who has never taken that serious step. I want to take refuge in Jesus as my king, as my ruler. I am abdicating. I'm no longer going to try to be king. I recognize I'm not up to it. I need a king like Jesus to rule my life, my daily decisions, my relationships, everything. Blessed This is the one who's blessed, the one who takes refuge in Jesus as king. So so no matter what land you live in today, 
if you are a Christian, a serious follower of Jesus Christ, this king, then you live in a foreign land. It's a country that's not ultimately your real home. And so that means you are indeed called to sing the Lord's song right here where you live. Songs of praise and adoration for the one king who is worthy. Songs of comfort and joy for the saints in Christ. Songs of loving exhortation to one another that we might take the good news in word and deed to those who walk in darkness. These are the songs of Zion that you and I are to be singing. They're contagious if we sing them in the spirit of Christ. Others will hear and be drawn to them because we are the true Israel of God inviting all the peoples of the world to come take their refuge in Him, to come into this loving kingdom in the name of Jesus. So our objective for 2024, may we learn together to call on His name, to live under His rule in the foreign land of 2024. Because this new year is also a foreign land to all of us. It's unknown territory. We do, know not, do not know what it holds. And we need a king who is up to that. Will you sing his song with me? We're going to end this morning singing a song together as we usually do. But this song has some peculiar characteristics. It's called The Blessing. And I would like us to sing it to one another. Surely, let's bless each other with the words of this song. But would you join me in a spirit of prayer to bless the nation of Spain? This is where God has put us for this time in our lives. This nation needs a blessing. Because from many quarters, this nation is being cursed It's being put under a terrible curse. And if you and I do not bless, then a curse is what will overwhelm this nation.